Thank you. So um, this question is a bit lengthy, and there's, there's a related one, so I'll just ask the two of them together. Um, so the person frames this in the reality of Islamic healing in the Middle Belt, um, the context of what's happening in Northern Africa, where uh, over time you find people um, have emigrated from um, the Arabian Peninsula and have taken over, driven out Christians, um, and then also in the context of the compromise between government and law enforcement agencies in the middle belt of Nigeria. And so the question is, gospel-centered response is no arms, no warfare prayer. How do our tribes handle the threat of entertainment and extermination, sorry? If the agenda is to overrun the country, what do we do? And then a related question is, it says, in the context of gospel theology and gospel-centered life, where do we place the die-by-fire prayers? Okay, um, so we, we have a lot of uh, Christians, a lot of churches have a um, certain view of spiritual warfare. And spiritual warfare basically is engaging in the metaphysical through, because we are spiritual beings, we have, we would say we have a certain kind of spiritual authority and um, we wrestle not against flesh and blood and they're, they're diabolical things that happen in that realm. So the way you battle that, you have spiritual warfare is in certain kinds of prayers, you speak into those things and if you have powers, that's how you battle them. So for instance, you take um, the Islamic terrorists. If you're not going to raise arms against them, what you can do is if there are principalities and powers behind them, those things, you can deal with those principalities and powers and that way, you actually neutralize them in the physical. Now, let me say I'm not totally against that. I don't think the Bible would totally be against that. So let me give, um, being an African, you know, when sometimes I look at people in the West and the way they read the Bible, it's always too conceptual. There are demons. Demons exist, right? People should be, and I'm not saying everyone in the panel will agree with this, all right? So this is Femi speaking. Pe but demons exist. There is such a thing as exorcism. It didn't just happen in the Bible in biblical times. People can be demonized, and by the power of God, they can be set free. The way Paul did it to that girl that was under oppression, it does happen now. People are under that oppression, and by the power of God, they can be set free. Now, with that in context, first of all, let me say, our theology of prayer needs to change. If I say to someone, I declare to you that God is going to do something, you have not prayed. If I say, in the name of Jesus Christ, this thing should come out, you have not prayed. Because prayer, according to what the Bible teaches us, is prayer is speech that is directed to God through Christ in the power of the Spirit. You understand? So if you are not speaking to God, you are not praying. Exorcism is not prayer. And therefore, spiritual warfare in that regard does not go directly through prayer. It's not that I'm battling something in the air and that's not spiritual warfare. 
if you read Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6 and 2 Corinthians 10 and put them together, what you will find out is that the offensive of spiritual warfare, because it is the kingdom of light against the kingdom of darkness. But since the days of John the Baptist, the kingdom of God allows violence, right? And violence and violent and it allows violence and what? And it's, violent, and it's also, but the kingdom of God is violently advancing. I know it's a difficult Greek translation. But when you read the book of Acts, what do you see? The book of Acts is basically a narration of the advancement of the kingdom of God. The book of Acts is spiritual warfare detailed for us over about 30 to 40 years. And one of the things you see, you see it in Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter uh, 6, you see it in Acts chapter 9, you see it in Acts chapter 12, you see it in Acts chapter, uh, I can't remember the last one. But we basically see, Jesus says, power is going to come. If you will be my witnesses, you'll be witnesses from Judea, uh, in Jerusalem, Judea, uh, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. In, in, in Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 7, it is Jerusalem and Judea. In Acts chapter 8, it reaches Samaria. By the time you get to Acts chapter 10, it reaches the end of the world with, the, with uh, Cornelius. But essentially, it goes from Jerusalem in Acts chapter 1, and Paul is now where? In Rome in Acts chapter 28. And what has been the journey there? It's been the advancement of the gospel. True spiritual warfare happens when you speak the gospel, someone believes, when that person believes, he is taken from the kingdom of darkness and is put into the kingdom of light. Where does prayer come in? Aha. Paul said, can you pray for me when he speaks about the armor of, armor, the armor of, um, armor of God, helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness. This is the con this is context of spiritual warfare. And Paul says, the only offensive thing that we have is the word of God. Now, that word of God is not the Bible. The word of God is actually the gospel. Now, the gospel comes from the Bible. You understand? But when it says the word of God there, as it's being used also in the book of Acts, it's the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. But it's the word about Christ. So that's the offensive. Then later he then says, pray for us so that we can have an open door for our message to be heard. So when we pray and engage in spiritual warfare, what we should be praying for is for the advancement of the gospel. That is the way Satan is being defeated. Do you understand me? So spiritual warfare is not, who are those my enemies? All the people in my village, all the people, let them die. No, all the people in your village that are trying to control you, let them be saved. Amen. That is spiritual warfare. Because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Those principalities and powers want to stop the advancement of the gospel. What we pray for is for fertile ground. When Jesus saw that the harvest was, was plenteous, right? He says, the laborers are few. So go and preach the gospel. He says, no. Pray ye that the Lord of the harvest will send laborers. So the prayer helps us with the people that then go forth with the gospel. And so that's why a lot of prayers like, let my enemies fall down and die, they don't come out of the gospel heart of love. They come out of vengeance. But vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Leave it to God to repay. We are not called to curse. We are called to bless.
add to that? Is there anything you want to say about um, in terms of praying for God to stop um, attacks or God to prevent? Yes. Okay. Sorry. So then, what happens with the look? Boko Haram is diabolically is diabolically um, is is the devil that is behind that. There's a beast in Revelation 13 that comes against the church. The church has two enemies. Well, one enemy, but that enemy is being used by two different channels. So you have the dragon, Satan, but Satan works through two beasts. One beast is persecution, right? The beast that, that comes from, uh, from the sea. That's persecution. It's always been there. The second beast is deception. That's false teaching. So one comes from outside to destroy the church. The other one comes from inside the church, false teaching to destroy the church. So it is being moved by Satan. Here's the point. How did they overcome Satan's devices? We see them in Revelation 13. But how did they overcome those beasts? They overcame them how? By the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. So we continue to advance the gospel. Now, if you raise people with gospel-shaped hearts, Hopefully, they go into politics. And there, in politics, they, they can advocate. They can advocate for just laws. Maybe some of them will go into the military. Maybe some of them will be, I don't know, presidents or legislators or whatever. When William, when um, Shaftesbury, William, uh, Shaftesbury and um, William Wilberforce, when they ended slavery, right, these were evangelical Christians that believed the gospel. So remember, if it's, there's a spiritual renewal, it then has social implications. Now, but if you are in a context like, say, China, that just banned all missionaries and said they can't enter, there are certain times that people experience in certain cultures winter seasons, where it's at is where God allows Satan to continue to hold, but Satan doesn't have the last word. So I'm saying Christians should be active in politics, they should advocate, but Christians should be careful, especially in this country. If we say there is an Islamic agenda, let us not have a, a Christian agenda. Because this is not how the kingdom of God comes through. There's only one Christian agenda. We are to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. And people that convert in the gospel, they then start to have both social and cultural implications. Some of them will be in government. Some of them will be in business. Hopefully they can advance gospel-shaped initiatives and things like that. That's one thing we can do. But ultimately, the solution to all evil is when we cry, even so, Lord Jesus, come. Thank you. Um, next question says, what is the place of asking for spiritual intervention in a gospel-centered church, for instance, in a village where the people are experiencing hardships or in a society where there's poverty and lots of lack? How do you, how do you ask for spiritual intervention? An open question. I mean, David, you 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 work in very difficult contexts where there's there's poverty and all. Yes. So let me, yeah, do me hear the question so I hear it clearly. Yeah. Okay. So it says, what is the place of asking for spiritual intervention in a gospel-centered church? Mm -hmm. So, for instance, in a village or in a place where the people are experiencing hardships, there's a lot of poverty, lack, things like that. Yeah. So. One of the things, and I was telling Jeremiah this, in our context, we I work in a low-income, mostly African-American um, part of Houston, Texas. And so one of the things that I have been constantly trying to teach, because there are lots of people who feel like, you know, hey, it's tough times, it's very difficult for us, is that to get them to see in a gospel context and in a global context, 
that actually we are some of the richest people in the world, even still, because of some of the things that we have, even though we may be poor here in America, but in context to the world, we're not very poor. And so to get them to start thinking more um, uh, outside of just where they are and start thinking globally as where we fit into this gospel message in terms of the whole world, not just where I am. Because, and you talked about it, I thought, a little bit yesterday. Yes, I do believe God wants us to prosper. It's if you walk with him, you will prosper. But the real question is, has he already given you enough? And what are you doing with it now? And are you, are you looking at it through the real lens of where God has you now? And so uh, in our community, I spend a lot of time, yes, we do a lot of service because I do believe that it's important as a uh, uh, part of the gospel is serving the people. And there are people with needs. And so we go out, if, and I have a lot of single moms in our church, you know, a lot of single moms in our community. And it's funny when you mentioned about, so we have a lot of shootings, you know, crime where people have shot and killed one another and sometimes breaking in people's houses where they kick the front door open. And I will get calls sometimes from single moms who we are sitting here and we're waiting on the police to come. But my family, we're we're exposed. Can you come and sit with us? It's 11 o'clock at night. Yes, I'm coming. I must go. I will be there until the police get there. Or there are two guys, and they are ready to shoot each other. Would you come and talk to them because they know you? Yeah, right. And scary sometimes, but I need to be there, you know? There's one time even my wife and I, we got into an argument because there was a young, there was an older man who was taking advantage of a teenage girl, 13 years old. He's a grown man. And she ran down to go deal with him. And I said, no, you need to let me go do that. This is dangerous. But I think the point I'm trying to make is, is that many of, the, many of the most powerful moments that I've experienced in sharing the gospel has not been from the pulpit. It's been on the street. It's been meeting people's needs and walking alongside them in the moment, helping them fix the roof where the water is coming in while I'm sharing the gospel helping them uh, walk through a difficult situation, and I'm sharing the gospel. So my experience has been, you know, walking alongside people in these situations. In the morning when I do a prayer walk every morning, there are prostitutes on the street. And sometimes they, they stop me, would you pray for me? I'm like, how do you know? I know you're a preacher. And, and, and so I can, I can talk with them. I can minister with them. They will never come to the church. Never come to the church. I bet once you come to the church, I'm not coming to the church. But I'll talk to you now. Give me a word. And so it's being, you know, just, just being what people need me to be. And, and it's not, I don't have office hours. I don't get to punch in at 8 in the morning and leave at 5. Sometimes it's 11 o'clock, 10 o'clock. Sometimes 6 o'clock in the morning. Pastor, I need a ride and I don't have any money to get to work. And I'm like, I'll give you the money because I don't want to get up. <laughs> but, but, yeah, but, you know, so yeah. I don't know if that answers that, but that's kind of that's what I try to do. Uh, one, one thing I would just add is that part of the challenges of, of pastoring the, the, the church I pastor is that 
there are some people that are very comfortable because the Lord has blessed them, and prayer is a struggle. And honestly, you need to. I, um, one, uh, my second child was was um, he basically came he came out what he wasn't breathing, um, and even though I would say I wasn't on the streets, I wasn't thinking about my, my, where my rent was coming. He wasn't breathing for 20 minutes. At that point, you know what praying for divine intervention is. And sometimes I think what you have to do, what we have to do, if you have such people in your congregation, get them to spend more time with poor people. Because poor people only have a hope in this world with God. There are many different things. They they just need God's intervention. Please don't hear us saying gospel-centered, and that then means it's all about theology and thinking. You don't truly understand what it means to be gospel-centered if you are not a prayerful person. Remember one of the shones was adoption? Where do we see that adoption most pronounced in the in scriptures? When we first say we want to pray, teach us to pray, and how do we start? Our Father. So you are not fully gospel-centered if you are not a praying person. And many times, it's not the only kind of prayer we can pray, but many times it is more like, God, if you don't move, nothing will happen. Please, the movement that we're talking about, this gospel-centered movement in this city, 21 million people. When I'll give you some of those stats, if you don't feel inadequate, I, I do. And so we have to be praying for God's intervention. So we have personal things we ask God to intervene in. Some of these people where Boko Haram are coming in, sometimes they have a personal intervention that we, they just need. And also, as we want to see the gospel spread, we need to pray more and more for God's divine intervention. Um, so the next question here, it says... In, the, in a gospel-centered context, who is an apostle? And again, this is just in the background of um, our society, the, the, the spiritual culture in, in Nigeria particularly. Albert. <laughs> no, I meant Albert is an apostle. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me, let me talk about this in a number of different ways. Um, because I think in some ways... Uh, European Christianity, which then became North American Christianity, uh, in, in many ways uh, kind of edited out the apostles, prophets, evangelists, uh, shepherds and teachers, or pastors and, and teachers. And we were left with just pastor teachers, mm. which I think is a huge mistake. Yes. Uh, because pastor teacher, generally speaking, is not aggressive. It's not proactive. Mm. Evangelist is proactive mm-hmm. uh, and prophetical. Although, although some of you may may think in terms of prophecy being, um, you know, future uh, telling or or being able to somehow sur- supernaturally divine what people are doing, we tend to use that term prophet in the sense of being able to take the word and speak in such a way that it literally changes the hearts of people, not merely to, to receive the gospel, but actually they see oh. I really need to do this differently, or here's what needs to be addressed in society. And apostle, uh, so although I'm s- a little bit reluctant to use that word, um, I think it's actually a word that we should be using. It really just means to be sent. You know? and, and so what I, what I do is I move between leaders and churches trying to do, trying to kind of facilitate what's happening. I think what Toby is doing is apostolic work. Uh, it, so it doesn't necessarily have the authority bearing you know, kind of a kind of a, a an aspect to it, um, but but uh, but I think we we actually need to recapture that ter- that term uh, because I think I think there I think that's part of how it how it works. Paul kept sending Timothy or 
uh, Epaphroditus or Titus or, or um, uh, Silas to different places. That's apostolic ministry. Uh, it had nothing to do with, with I'm bringing new revelation to you or you know, something, uh, something along those lines. So, so I actually think we need to recover, uh, recover some of those things. But if I may, if, if I can just take a little liberty to go beyond this question a little bit, because uh, one, one of the young guys that had to leave was asking me a question. Sometimes I think our rhetoric about church planting uh, is mis misunderstood a bit. Um, so we, we, we're constantly talking about planting new churches. But I I in one sense, I think s sometimes we, we really don't say it correctly. The planting of churches or the establishing of churches or the building of churches really should be a derivative of evangelism and discipleship, not the reverse. Now, what's, what's interesting is that the activity of planting a church usually drives you to evangelize and disciple and those kinds of things. But, but really, the establishing a church came along as Paul brought the, or, or others, brought the gospel to people, and they came to Christ. Then, oh, what do we do with them? Well, we needed to gather them into communities. And those communities oftentimes were house-to-house -house type things, but, uh, but they, they began to publicly worship together. Uh, for them, it was on Saturdays initially. Later, later it would be you know, before the break of dawn on, on, on Sunday, that sort of thing. But the establishing of churches is a derivative uh, rather, than, rather than reverse. Uh, so, so, so I think we need to recapture those other functions or gifts or, or what have you rather than we think if, we're, if we set up the church in the right way, and we really deliver good, good teaching, people will come. Well, actually, they may not. In a, in a, progressively, uh, in a progressively in a society that, that, that sees less and less need for the church. So we've got to reorient the church, ourselves and others, to constantly have these, these evangelistic contacts within the community. I know that goes way beyond the question, but, but uh, you know. Yeah, OK. Um, so actually, that's the last question. Um, and I was hoping that our time is almost up. I was hoping if we could have a final word from each of the, the speakers, just a word of encouragement to the, to the pastors and leaders who have come. And if we can start with that. Um, well, one, what a privilege to be with you. I've loved getting to hear some of your stories in between the meetings. I, I would just say... Uh, the refrain that we heard from Paul at the beginning and the end of 2 Corinthians 4, do not lose heart. God has given you all that you need. He has given you all that you need in the gospel. He has poured his spirit into your hearts, and he's given you the power to carry this mission forward. And so I hope that what has happened over the last couple of days is that you are increasingly excited about the very gift of this opportunity that's on your doorstep. And I just want you to say, you've got what it takes and God goes before you. I can't wait to continue to see how God works through this group as he get, begins to create this ecosystem through the men and the women that God's calling to this. I can't wait to see what he's going to do with you. Yeah, and to tie into that, um, praise God that you guys are in Lagos. And uh, it must be the most exciting place on earth to be. Uh, and I know you often don't feel it. It really feels like that coming here. And, uh, and it does look like that from the outside. And, uh, and that's not an accident. Uh, the Lord is sovereign over these things. And, and so each of you guys in the place where you are and with the gifting that you've got is the product of the Lord's sovereignty over all things in life. And, uh, and so praise him for that and use that for his glory. He's, he, like Jeremiah said, he's, give, he's given you all things that you need. You do have the, the gospel, which is the most powerful thing. 
And so, uh, so we'll, we'll continue to pray for you guys and look in anticipation to see what he does in Lagos. Story, story. <laughs> this, I think this goes to uh, having confidence that, that God is really at work. I want to I tell you the story of the backdrop of the Dubai thing. In 1960, or maybe it was late 1959, two doctors, a man and, a, and, a, and his wife, both doc medical doctors, went to Alain, which is uh, a little oasis just to the east of Abu Dhabi. Uh, they went there to establish a hospital because at that point, the Emirates were absolutely, abjectly poor. They had nothing. There were, at that point, more than 60% of the children uh, that would die within childbirth or within three months. 40% of the, of the women giving birth would die. They go to this abjectly poor place. They, you know, the, the economy had been driven by oyster diving uh, uh, until the Japanese developed cultured pearls and that changed so it just robbed them of any income. So they're literally surviving on camel's milk, on dates, and when the locusts came, they actually were really grateful for a protein. I mean, seriously. Uh, and you know, so, so there, was, there was nothing there. So this couple goes there out of, out of a gospel-motivated um, mission to demonstrate mercy. They create this little hospital. It's, it's initially a grass hut. It later, on, it later on becomes a little concrete block building. Later on, it would become a greater hospital. But as they begin to you know, uh, put into, in, into practice kind of normal medical processes, the, the infant mortality drops to, nor to, to normal rates across the world. The incidence of women dying in childbirth drops to normal, normal rates, which is under 3%. Uh, and it, it just radically changes. And, and um, uh, so they, they labor there for 30 years, faithfully proclaiming the gospel to all these Muslims in, in the Emirates, not one person comes to Christ, not one, even faithfully. I always cry when I tell the story, because it's a little overwhelming. But in, in 2003, I think it is, maybe it's 2005, the Sheikh of Abu Dhabi gives a gift of $135 million to rebuild that hospital. And they thought, they, they knew it was coming. Dave, Dave and the, these guys knew it, knew it was coming. But they thought he was going to do this quietly, behind the scenes. Instead, he calls, he, he calls a news conference. And, and he says, many of you may wonder why I, a devout Muslim, would be giving such a great amount of money to a Christian hospital. He made the emphasis. He said there's two reasons. So. The backdrop is this, 1961, oil is discovered, okay? One reason, they loved us before there was oil. Second reason, my father, former sheikh, told me these were good people. They administered faithfully, caring for people, still proclaiming the gospel. Everybody knew that they were about Jesus, that sort of thing. No, no fruit from that. But... They, their presence, even before the 2005 gift, allowed the, the Sheikh of Dubai, the, the Sheikh of Dubai gave a piece of property so that a number of churches could literally be established in a Muslim country. 
It was really a result of this. Today, there are literally hundreds of churches throughout the Emirates that have now been started. Thousands of people are coming to Christ. And indeed, the Lord may use Dubai to upend the Islamic world. That was because of a faithful witness of two people that didn't see results in their, in their ministry time. Now, they're, they're, they're long since dead now. But they did see some of it. But if, 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 if we could encourage you to sacrifice for Christ, to live for him in this place, some of you won't maybe get the numerical res results that you want, but I think faithful, faithful ministering the gospel will create something here or continue something here that could be beyond compare. You know, I'd just say a couple of things. One, if I would like to speak to the, the people in here who may, maybe you are not seminary trained. Maybe you didn't have the highest test scores in school. You know, maybe you don't have all the pieces that somebody would say, yeah, this man, this is the one. But deep in your heart, there's a passion for people in your city. Or God's placed you in a place and you look around and your heart is broken because of what you see. I would say to you, God will give you what you need to do what he's called you to do. You may look at yourself and say, I don't know if I'm the one. I don't know if there are others maybe who are better qualified. I want to encourage you. If God's put a burden in your heart and he's placed you in that place, that you would not shrink from that and that you would not, hide, that you would not look at yourself as unworthy. But that you would say, God, if you would go with me, if you would go before me, I, I will be obedient to your call. And allow God to use you how, you how he may. And then the last piece I would say is, to all of you, whatever God calls you to, however he works it, don't sacrifice your family. He doesn't mean for you to sacrifice your family. He means for you to balance them both. Love them well. As passionate as you are for the kingdom and for the work that he's called you to, he has not called it to you to, to leave them in the dust. He's called you to love them as passionately and bring them along. Because I've learned this. The people that I minister to and that I serve, I don't know if I'll see them next year. I don't know if God may call me somewhere else in five years. But I do know there's, there are some people I'm going to know for the rest of my life. My wife, my son and my daughter. Those relationships I will have forever. I know that. I hope to have all my relationships forever. Those I know I'll have. And I'm called to care and, and love them. So bring them, take care, take good care of them and love them with the full level of gospel as well. Amen. Amen.